Well, good evening. I, I saw we had to keep making uh, extra copies of the outline. That was, that was pretty exciting. Um, I want to welcome you here to our first uh, midweek service. And hopefully uh, we get through this just fine and you want to come back. Um, I'll give you a, just a really kind of Cliff Notes explanation of the way we're doing things and why we're doing them the way we are. Really wanted to kind of open up with a... Um, with a, with a Bible teaching and get right into a Bible study. But it occurs to me a couple of things. Number one, that we see entering into the church more and more a, 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 a more secular, more worldly uh, mind view in terms of how we look at the Bible. And we see people that are justifying behaviors and activities that Scripture condemns and vice versa. Uh, and, and really, and I'm going to be talking about this a lot Sunday, so I don't want to go too, too far into it. But when somebody asks me what the rule and the authority over my life is, I want to tell them, well, Jesus Christ is the authority over my life. But the, the problem with that is that I was not alive 2,000 years ago to listen to Jesus teach in Galilee and in the towns where he was at. So if I'm going to base my life around the teachings of Jesus... Where do I get them from? The Word of God. I have to have a high understanding of the Word of God and a high value to it if I'm going to be able to place the Word of God and place the teachings of Jesus as the authority of my life. Several years ago, a seminary student who had been in our youth group, very, very intelligent young man, I think he's working on or has finished up his doctorate, but he reached out to me and he was asking me questions and I could tell by the tone that he was really drifting into a very low view of scripture. And one of the things that I challenged him on because uh, I didn't want to get into the, an intellectual argument with him, I, I didn't think that would be very productive. One of the things I challenged him on is go back and study the history of revivals throughout the church. Throughout church history, go back and study revivals. And what you'll find is that in every single case where there's a revival from the time of Acts chapter 2 on to the Brownsville revival in 1995 and even what we just saw in Ashbury, uh, Tennessee this year, you see people with a very high view of the authority of Scripture. You never see a group of people or an individual come about and say, well, you know, I don't believe the Bible uh, is, is terribly true. I don't believe it's particularly accurate. And then see a great transformation and outpouring happen. If God is speaking through history, he is telling us that he is looking for churches and individuals who honor his word. And so what I want to do at the Bridge Church is help you to have the tools to know, can I trust the Bible? How do we know that the gospel writers got it right? Uh, a lot of times what people will do is say, hey, look, there was a delay in writing, the, the, you know, for decades there were no Gospels and there was a delay in writing them. So how do we know that what we have is actually the story of, of Jesus? And that's, that's a good thing to ask. So let's ask those questions to begin with. Isn't it reasonable to assume that the Gospel writers might have forgotten some of the details or even most of the details by the time they put pen to papyrus. If that was decades later, isn't it possible that they may have forgotten most of the details, that they may have filled in the blanks, so to speak? 
Secondly, can we be sure that the writer's religious zeal didn't just get in the way of their historical reporting? That as they got more popular, as the church grew bigger and bigger, that they just expanded it, that they began to insert... That's Thomas Jefferson believed that the miracles were inserted later. And so maybe just as they got to be bigger and bigger in popularity and the church grew, that they made the stories bigger and they weren't terribly concerned with the historical aspects of it. Third, since the Gospels were written to specific communities, how do we know that the Gospels weren't written to appeal to those audiences? We know, for example, that Mark was primarily written to a Roman audience. Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. Matthew often, in most of all the Gospels, speaks of prophecy. And, it, and, and couldn't the argument be made that the Gospels were written to appeal to those audiences? Now, we have a very strong scholarship in understanding the Bible. For example, a lot of modern translations, like the New King James, the NASB, were based on the King James. Now, if you were to look at each one of those translations, if you were to look at the, the King James, or the Authorized, or the English Standard Version, the NASB, you can tell by language which was translated first. So, for example, let's say you were looking at a, a document, and, and at the end of the word, it appeared like there was an F and then an S. Well, if you look at the the early documents of our nation's history, and it says Congress, for example, it looks like Congress. But we, and, and so if you were looking at that document, you would be able to know the time period in which it was written because of the style of, of text. In, in, and also, when you're looking at, at modern translations, there are textual differences. The King James Version is based on later manuscripts from about the 600s, while modern translations tend to use uh, manuscripts that are centuries older than those used in the King James. So there's a good question. Well, aren't the older translations always better? These are, these are things that we need to be able to explain to people because a lot of times, and I'll admit it, when I first came to Jesus, I kind of had this idea that the Bible was given to the apostles and the writers like by dictation. Right, that they kind of got in a room and God just spoke to them and they just wrote down everything God said. Then as I began to study them, I realized they never made that claim. Now, if that happened to you, right, like Moses going up the mountainside and getting the, the commandments, you would say, this happened to me. I went into a room, the Lord began to speak, I pulled out my pen and papyrus and I wrote down everything God told me. You would want to make sure you said that. None of the gospel writers say that. As a matter of fact, Luke, at the beginning of his gospel, makes it clear. I kind of interviewed people. I wasn't an eyewitness. I talked to a lot of people, and, and, and I got the story of what happened. He had access, certainly, as Paul's traveling companion. He would have had access to the apostles. He would have had access to Mary and the, the brothers of Jesus. So uh, John also similarly says, there's a lot of things that could have been written down about Jesus. I wrote these things... Specifically so you could have faith. The other three Gospels were almost certainly written. They're called the Synoptic Gospels, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And John writes his last, and he says, I wrote it for this perspective. I wrote it as, as a kind of a work to really help gird your faith. It wasn't, it wasn't meant to be necessarily a historical narrative, but to help build up your faith. Not that the history is not true, but, but John was saying, my point is, I'm trying to encourage, I'm trying to strengthen you. And so he's focusing on different aspects. As a matter of fact, 
If you compare John's gospel with the synoptic gospel, 90% of what is in John is not in the synoptic gospels. So he would have had the opportunity to look at them and say, you know, this story really encouraged me, right? This story about Jesus doing this, for example, the story of the woman caught in adultery is found only in the gospel of John. And so John would probably have said, hey, this really encouraged me. This really built up my faith. This really helped me to know Jesus. So he chose those particular things. Does that nullify inspiration? These are good questions. That's why you're here. <laughs> I'm not going to answer all of these tonight, but I can tell you this right now. The Bibles in use today are the most accurate and faithful to the oldest manuscripts that the church has ever had in its, in its possession. As a matter of fact, just this week, in a, I can't remember, maybe the USA Today or New York Post or something, a major news story, there was a story about that their discovery of a missing chapter. Now, it wasn't a chapter we didn't have, but what would often happen is scribes would reuse vellum and papyrus, and something was copied over, and they were able, through modern technology, to go back to the original writing and compare it to what was on the page today. They didn't have that 400, 500 years ago when they were translating Bibles. And, and when we talk about, we, there is a really an embarrassment of riches in, in when we talk about how the Bible was put together. We have an embarrassment of riches in manuscripts, fragments, lectionaries that goes almost, almost back to the time Jesus walked this earth. So I want to define some terms because this is going to help us as we go through this study. I mentioned the synoptic gospels. Now these are the three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which have a great deal of overlapping material. I mentioned John's uh, material is about 90% original to the gospel of John and is not found in the other gospels. In contrast, Mark's gospel, only about 10% of it can't be found anywhere else. So if you're reading Matthew or Luke, you're going to find a lot of these overlapping materials. The second term I'm going to use a lot is source criticism. Source criticism is examining the written sources. It doesn't mean to be critical. It, think, of, think of it in terms of research. Um, that you would take kind of a, a, a close examination of something. And this is examining the sources that may have been used when writing the gospel. So a criticism in this case refers to research or critical assessment, not dis disapproval or disparagement. Third, literary relationship. The belief that the synoptic gospels were not written in total isolation from one another. Four, Mark and priority. And this is the belief that most scholars hold to. That Mark's gospel was the first gospel and that Matthew and Luke used Mark's gospel as a source. And lastly, the four-source hypothesis. Those, the, the scholars who believe, and like I said, that's a majority of them, who believe that Mark's gospel was the first, believe that there is something called the four-source hypothesis or, or foundation. And that is that there were four things that were used to compile the gospels. Number one, Mark's gospel. Um, Secondly, Q, which is a, just an abbreviation for quello, which just means source. And let me explain what, why scholars believe it. That because there is so much overlapping material, 
Scholars believe that at some point, there was probably an abbreviated version of the Gospels that was used in churches. Now let me tell you, about, I've, got, I've got some friends who for years they would go into, they worked for an uh, uh, organization called Book of Hope. And Book of Hope would go into countries that did not have a translation of the Gospel in their language. And so you know what they had at first? They always made an abbreviated translation of the four Gospels that they would have to be able to give to pastors to be able to preach from it until an entire translation of the Scriptures could be made in their native tongue. And so it's, it stands to reason that in the early church there would have been a consensus on what was being preached. Remember in the book of Acts, Paul... Is, ...is dealing with some issues that are new to the church. Things like circumcision. Things like the eating of meat with blood. Things that had to do with Jewish regulations. And at the time, the church was a pretty good mix of Jews and Gentiles. So how do we get everybody to get along? So Paul gives his answer, but you know what he also does? He goes to Jerusalem and he meets with the eleven... ...and they hash out that in prayer and fasting... What is it that we should say to these Gentile believers? We don't want to put them under law, but we also don't want to encourage behavior that would be very, very offensive to their Jewish brethren. And so there is obviously in the early church a very high regard for apostolic testimony, the men who personally walk with Jesus. Even Paul himself, anointed as he was, called directly by Jesus in close contact with the Holy Spirit, still goes up to Jerusalem and confers with the eleven. So it makes sense that there would have been some kind of source that the apostles had approved of to say this actually happened. These stories we saw with our own eyes. And also it makes sense if that source exists that as Luke began to write, and the very first thing you see in Luke chapter 1 is Luke saying, I'm not an eyewitness, right? Other people have written down what happened. Um, and, and that's interesting because... Luke's, Luke's gospel would have been written, like I said, right after Mark. So it wasn't like there was a hundred books out there. Uh, we're going to talk about that in this series. If, if you ever seen some of that banned from the Bible stuff, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, uh, these, these programs about these lost gospels and things like that. We're going to talk about why those aren't in there. Um, so there was Mark's gospel. There was Q. There was M, which is material that is unique to Matthew. Possibly and probably his own eyewitness testimony. And L, which is material unique to Luke. Luke mentions, like I said, that he used outside sources for his gospel. Now, I began by saying that there was a delay in the writing of the gospels. Jesus died around A.D. 30 to 33. And the first gospel was probably not written until the 60s A.D. It was almost certainly written before the fall of Jerusalem, or you would think that would have been mentioned. But it was written in the 60s. So why the delay? Why that 30-year delay or so? A better question I would ask is, why write at all? Why write at all? You live in, a, in, an, in an oral culture. You live in a time where things are told by stories. You live in a time where the church has grown exclusively... ...by the preaching of the gospel... ...there didn't seem to be a lot of sense... ...why bother writing this stuff down? I think there were two things that happened... ...that caused the writers to realize... 
that they needed to, to come up with a written account of, of the life of Jesus. Number one, the apostles began to die off. The apostles began to die off. And so you didn't have that authority to turn to. They recognized that, you know, one or two can die. But we, like we talked about Sunday, you had a, a great persecution that began to come against the apostles. And they were being killed all throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. So we want to be able to write down what the apostles have been teaching the church. Now remember, if you read in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes, it's the birthday of the church. And the Bible first and foremost says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so I believe that the disciples of Jesus began to realize that the apostles' teaching is going to die off with the apostles if we don't record what they said. While it is in their lifetimes and they can put their stamp of approval on it. Uh, but secondly, I think they also began to realize that Jesus was not going to return as immediately as they thought he would. And that's a natural uh, tendency too. I, I think if I had been walking with Jesus and I had seen the crucifixion and the resurrection, I'd been with Jesus after, his, his, after the resurrection and before the ascension, and then say you're there on that hilltop that day and the angels say, this same Jesus who you saw going to heaven will return the same way you saw him going to heaven. I think I, I would simply assume, well, this is going to be soon, right? Everything, everything that has happened up to that point has happened in three years. All their total experience has been in three years. Think about all the, the miracles that we could talk about. It's all happened in a three-year period, including the crucifixion and the resurrection. So they would have naturally assumed, well, his return is probably going to come very, very soon as well. And when that didn't happen, I think that began to spark the understanding that there is going to be another generation that is going to be behind us that we have to spiritually care for. So it is not re reasonable to assume that the gospel writers thought it was necessary initially to write for several reasons. Number one, they lived in a culture where oral tradition was the norm. That's how rabbis taught their disciples. Rabbis would teach them over and over and over until they could repeat it perfectly. That's why, I mean, if I begin by saying, Our Father who art in heaven, every one of us knows how to continue, right? If I say, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I could turn off the mic and we could all repeat Psalm 23. And that was the way that Jewish rabbis taught their students. If they messed up, if they missed a word, do it again. Do it again. I used to have a music uh, producer. And he would be like, hey, that was really good. Do it again. It's really good. Why do I have to do it again? Because it wasn't perfect. Right? And so this was back before Pro Tools and Auto-Tune. So do it again. It's got to be right. That's it. You listen to like, the old school stuff. You listen to like, aha. Or I'll be good. That guy's singing that for real. Right? That's, that's, that's not Auto-Tune. So, so nowadays, you could just sing anything and you just tune it the way you want. Couldn't do that, right? Didn't have the technology. And so in a culture where there was no abundance of written language, it was there. But it wasn't like there were bookstores on every corner. It wasn't like most people were literate. And so especially in the Gentile world, as the church was expanding, it would have been focused around preaching. And they would have preached these stories over and over and over. Uh, secondly, like I said, they believed Jesus would return before such documents would become necessary. Third, 
They wanted to disseminate the material as quickly as possible. When you go through the book of Acts and you look at the writings of Paul, what, is, what do we see? We see this explosion of growth. And if you were... I love what Billy Graham said. He said, if I were just starting my ministry again, and I knew that I had three years to, to get ready for the return of Jesus, he said I would spend the first two in preparation. As, I mean, as Billy Graham said that. Now... When you're excited and when there's a lot of events and activity happening, a lot of excitement going on, you just kind of run with it. And that's what we see in the early church. We see them going here and there. There's not really much of a plan. They're not strategizing. They're just saying, hey, I want to go. Even Paul, it's like, hey, I'm going to go over here into Asia Minor. And the Spirit has to say no and gives him a dream the next night. You know, God had to keep kind of bumping them. And you have this kind of youthful enthusiasm of the church as, as it was just being birthed and as it was very young and as it went into its adolescence. So they really thought Jesus is going to return. So the fastest way is just to go out and preach this to everybody, right? I mean, I could lock myself in a room with, with pen and papyrus, but that's going to take me months to write down this story. I can reach thousands and thousands of people in that same amount of time. They saw themselves as witnesses and evangelists. They didn't see themselves as historians, they saw them, remember what Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my historians. No, you will be my witnesses. And so that's how they saw themselves. We're, we're witnesses. Uh, years ago, I was, I was sitting at a, at a, at a light with um, the girl I was dating. So this was, I'm probably 19, 20. So it's going back you know, at least 15, 20 years now. Uh, <laughs> I'm hoping everybody's bad at math. So uh, we're sitting at this light, and somebody runs a, a light and just clocks into these two older women. He just flipped the car over, hit them that hard. Uh, my girlfriend was so shaken, she's like, I, I'm never going to drive again. She had just gotten her license. And um, I was, matter of fact, I had uh, went away for a while, and I got a call from an attorney, uh, from the attorney general's office, and they were bringing charges of vehicular manslaughter against the person because they were drunk. And I went into the deposition, and I think the deposition was maybe eight months later, and I knew the intersection. I told exactly where I was seated. I knew the color of the car. Um, I was the, maybe the first person to go into the car because being a little guy, it was kind of crumpled and I could get my body in just to say, are you guys all right? I remembered um, what, what was going on in the damaged car, the smell of alcohol from the driver of the other car. And once that eyewitness testimony was on record, the other party settled. They were hoping they could push it out and push it out and push it out and that the, the eyewitness testimony would get degraded. But once somebody came in and said, no, I smelled alcohol, I can tell you where it happened, I can tell you just about the angle of the sun, I can tell you how he hit this person, where they were, we better settle. right? That, and that's, that's a good eyewitness. I didn't walk away from that thinking, you know, I really need to document this. That's what a historian does. right? A newspaper reporter would say, can I interview because I want to chronicle what happened. But that's different from an eyewitness. And so the gospel was also spreading rapidly and having a tremendous impact without the four gospels. Q, Quella, may have been exist in existence as a basic manuscript 
of Jesus' teachings and works. I'm not going to go through all these. But look at, if you have, if, yeah, if they're in your outline. Each of these references speak to the, uh, probably some form of the gospel being written down or being communicated before the gospels were existed. How do we know? Because Luke and Acts were written as a companion piece together. Right? So Acts was written very, very early, as was the um, as were the, the, the epistles of Paul and, and James and, and Jude. And so yet Acts speaks of the gospel being communicated in some form. So since we already have this, like the book of hope, right? That we're given to pastors, the apostles will put their seal of approval on it. These are the stories that they saw Jesus uh, teach himself. These are the miracles that they witnessed themselves. And this has their seal of approval for you to preach. Clearly the apostles and church leaders were focusing on communicating the gospel verbally. So why write at all? Like I said, they began to die off, the apostles. And it became evident that the Lord wasn't going to return as quickly as, as, they, as they thought he might. And so, here's the thing about that. We would expect that the Gospels would be written to their own communities. Right? I mean, if, if you're worried about dying off, who are you going to write? Right? You're going to probably write your home church. You're going to write your own community, right? That's, you're worried about, I'm not, you know, I don't have much longer on this earth. Who do you want to write? And yet, and yet, three of the Gospels, all except Matthew, were written for Gentile audiences. They clearly anticipated where this was going. They saw what was happening in the birth of the early church. They saw how this was going further and further and further. This was going into Rome. This was going into what's now Europe. This was going down to Africa. And so instead of writing back home to their Jewish friends, they write to Gentile audiences. Paul wrote his letter to the Romans to a church he had never even visited. That, there seems to be an understanding of forward thinking that this is where this is headed. And I understand that as a pastor. When I came here, I, uh, I, and I mentioned this several months ago, but the board can tell you one of the first questions I asked them was, are you hiring a pastor to maintain what you have or are you hiring a pastor for the next season of the church? Because I didn't really have any interest in being a custodian of what was. I really and genuinely believed as I walked around here, as I prayed, God is going to move in Idaho Falls. God is going to move in this area. And, and I know as somebody who grew up surfing, you don't get the chance. When you see a wave, jump on it. Because there may not be another one. You want to surf the wave, you better surf the wave that God sends you. You can't just say, you know what, I, I, I don't like that one. Let me, let me just wait around. Or you know what, I just, I just need a, a break. Because you could sit there and wait. You could see three, four good waves come. And you say, you know what, I'll just wait for the next one. The next one don't come for a half hour. So I understand that as a leader. And I think the disciples and the apostles of Jesus recognized the future of the church and where it was going. All right, so let me ask this question. Was there really a delay? I don't mean, does, you know, were the Gospels written that early? They, they obviously were. Um, but does the word delay the proper word to use here? First off, Mark's Gospel was written, like I said, within 30 years or so of Jesus' ascension. There would have been many eyewitnesses who would have confirmed or denied its accuracy. Secondly, 
Luke is part of a one-two-part manuscript, Luke's Acts. Next time you read the book of Acts, think about how weird it is. I mean, really, it is, it is a weird book. It starts off like it is punchy and exciting and Jesus is talking with them and, and meeting and you see the ascension of Jesus Christ. You see the, the Holy Spirit come upon them. All these, these great incredible miracles happen. The birth of the church. Three thousand. I mean this is like a great opener. The end of the book is like chapter after chapter heading towards a trial that we never see happen. You're like what, what is this? You know, like, why would you write, if you're writing from, you know, like a historical narrative, why are you writing chapter after chapter about Paul being in prison, Paul's arrest, Paul's standing before Felix, and, and Paul standing before the Roman prefect, and then Paul appealing to Caesar, and then Paul getting sent off to Rome, and, and then there's this big shipwreck, and he almost dies, and so it's like, it's got to be culminating in the trial, right? This is like law and order. You want the chunk chunk, right? And you want the... You want the, you know, guilty, not guilty. And it never tells us what happens. We have to go elsewhere and find out what happens in, in the letters of Paul to discover what happened at his trial. Now, if it was being written as a kind of a trial brief, then it makes sense. If it's being written over those years while Paul has been arrested, and Luke and Paul were very close... Um, Luke was the physician that attended Paul. If it was being written to prepare so that they would have all of this documentation, well, then it makes sense. Then it makes sense. So, so it, it wasn't a delay. That was probably written out of necessity. Third, the Ryland's fragment of the Gospel of John has been dated to as early as 70 AD. Now, why is that important? Number one, whenever they carbon date something, let's say they have carbon dating that says... 125 to 175 A.D., right? Or 200 to 250 A.D. If they're ever able to conclusively find out when that was... Let's say you, find, you dig up a piece of paper and you date it to the year 300 A.D. through carbon dating. And you dig a little further down, a couple inches down, and you discover a coin. It says 301, right? So now you know that that piece of paper had to be written the earlier date. So almost always when they're able to conclusively verify when something happened or when this piece or, or object was in, was in use, it's almost always the earlier date. The Ryland's fragment has been dated between 70 and 125. And why that's important is because it is a fragment of the Gospel of John. Now, nobody contends that that's part of an original autograph. Now, uh, the word autograph... By the way, if you have a question, this is not Sunday, you can raise your hand, and I'm, I'm happy, to, happy to answer it. Autograph doesn't mean somebody... It's not an 80s metal band, and it doesn't mean somebody signed a piece of paper. Autograph means the original manuscript. So whenever you hear somebody talking about an original autograph of Scripture, it means the original manuscript. Nobody's contending that the Ryland's fragment is part of an original manuscript. So that means that by the year 70 A.D. or so, and it was found in Alexandria, in Egypt, the gospel in its written form had already traveled that far. It was in circulation prior to the destruction of the Jewish war's culmination in 70 A.D. So what happened in the meantime? The oral tradition of the apostles was not dormant. 
we know it was being preached, taught, and discussed on a daily basis during that time. Does anybody ever read um, the message translated? Anybody read? I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just asking if anybody ever uses it. Okay, it's interesting because there are only in the entire New Testament, there are only two footnotes in all of the message. One is at the end of the Gospel of Mark, the last 16 verses, uh, which most scholars believe were added much later. Um, They don't appear in any of the oldest and most ancient manuscripts, and the verbiage of the last 16 verses is very, very different. Mark had a horrendous command of Greek. He had no command whatsoever. If you try to read Mark chapter 1 in the original Greek, it's almost funny because Jesus seems like he he immediately did everything. Immediately Jesus did this. And immediately, I think he uses the word like eight or nine times in chapter 1. Now it makes sense, like if you were trying to write something in Spanish and you only knew one word for immediately in Spanish, you would use it over and over. Now if if you were speaking in your native language, you would just say, right away Jesus did this and very quickly he did this and immediately he did this. and and, right Because you'd come up with all these different ways to say it. If you didn't have much of a command, which Mark apparently didn't, the first 15 chapters, he has no command of Greek, and suddenly at the end of Mark 16, he has, you know, he's a Greek scholar. So most, most scholars are like, okay, this. But the other, and, and even more interesting uh, to me, is in John, and it's that, that passage that I spoke of about the woman caught in adultery. And that's the only other footnoted uh, part of, of the message translation or paraphrase, whatever you want to call it. Um... Most scholars believe that that was actually authentic, even though the earliest manuscripts don't have it. Now, why do they believe that? Number one, because it's written, as you would expect, somebody would write who was an eyewitness. You notice in that passage that it says that Jesus was writing on the ground? What was he writing? If you were making it up... Jesus was writing his shopping list for the week on, you know, whatever you would, you would make, you wouldn't just leave it there. Like you would think, oh, was he, I've heard like people that are, that are preaching it or teaching it say, you know, he was writing the law, right? I mean that, we don't know. It could have been the law. It, you know, it could have been his playlist for the week. I don't know. But, but it's exactly what you would expect from somebody who was sitting, you know, 30, 40 yards away, seeing him write, but not able to see what he was writing. But since John's uh, gospel was, and we know that John was Jesus' closest companion uh, in his lifetime, it, would, it seems to me, and, and scholars believe, that John had preached this so many times over the decades, over and over and over, told this story, that it became associated with his gospel. And it became very, very obvious to include it as the gospel was being circulated. The other thing you have to remember is if, because we know that they were in circulation so early, if somebody decided to slip something in there that wasn't true, there were literally thousands of people that were still alive that would have said, that didn't happen, right? So if tomorrow you go and tell somebody, yeah, I was watching... Uh, Pastor Dave last night, he was, he was pe- preaching in a, in a red shirt. There's a room full of people who say, no, he wasn't. 
There were thousands of eyewitnesses. If somebody had tried to slip something in, no, Jesus did not say that or twist his words. There were thousands of eyewitnesses that would have been there to correct them. We know that about 20 years after the resurrection, there was an agreement on the communication of the gospel. Um, we know this from, like I said, Paul's testimony, but also James's testimony, Jesus's brother, and the rest of the church leadership. We read that in Galatians 2, 1 and 2. So there was, like I said, not only a, a great deal of deference to the apostles, but there seems to be a consensus within 20 years of the resurrection of what the story actually was. If the earliest proclamation about Jesus had been altered to suit new territories or new people groups, we would have expected this to be a serious issue in the early church. If you were to go to a church in another part of the country and they preached the gospel that was very, very different from what you were familiar with, you would say, wait a minute, you know, uh, <laughs> this is not what I've been taught. And you would want to challenge that. At the very least, you might say, well, I'm never going back to that church. But since there wasn't that option, one of the things about ministering in New England that I noticed is you don't have a lot of options, right? I, I, we went and visited a church um, in, in a town called Madison, uh, Connecticut. It's right on the shoreline. And it's a town of about 15,000. It's not far from New Haven, Connecticut. And in this town of 15,000, there is one evangelical church. One. So you don't have a lot of options. You can't just say, I'm going to, you know, because if you get mad over nothing and you just, I'm going to take my ball and go home, you got a long drive on your hands each week, right? So you better think about whether it's worth it. So what would happen is people would not pit, take up their balls and go home. They would say, no, we're going we're gonna to contest for the truth as we know it. They would, they would fight for that to happen. And so the, if the earliest proclamation had been altered, that would have been a serious issue that would have been written about. All right, so here's another question. Could there have been a conspiracy to agree on one story? Right? Can't we just all get together and agree on one story, even if the story's not true? Right? Because if, you, if you're going to say that there was a lot of deference to the apostles, and if you're going to say that they controlled the narrative, couldn't they have conspired together? Couldn't they have altered the story together? And that's a, that's a valid point. Here's the problem. The gospel spread incredibly quickly. It spread incredibly quickly. We're going to talk in future studies about things like the Council of Nicaea. We're going to talk about how the canon was put together. But I want you to understand something. When you see these, you know, Da Vinci Code kind of arguments about the church getting together and altering manuscripts, it is not possible at all. One of the things that we used to do, um, and, we still, and we do in this church as well, is each council board member gets a copy of the minutes. We talk about what was said, and then, after we agree on it, we all have a copy of those minutes. Now imagine, and I had this happen once, where somebody came in and said, that wasn't said in a meeting. And guess what? Everybody else in the room 
pulled out their copy of the minutes. Now, somebody actually said, well, Pastor Dave could have altered the minutes. All right, for that to be plausible, I would have had to broken into the house of each of my board members, stolen their copy of the minutes, anticipating that down the white road, I want to change something, right? Because, you know, they voted to give me a $500 raise, and I want to make it a $50,000 raise. So, so I snuck into their house, changed it, not put a new guy. And when they said, we only voted to give you a $500 raise, they here it is. You voted to give me a $50,000 raise. Wow, we don't remember. That's as ridiculous as what they're trying to suggest. Because the, the early manuscripts spread so fast and so quickly. The gospel spread so quickly within a matter of months. The conspiracy would have had to happen within 50 days of the resurrection of Jesus. It would have had to happen before the day of Pentecost. Because after that, they didn't control the narrative. They could control, they could say, this is what we heard as eyewitnesses Jesus preach. But they could not say, oh, you know what, we want to add something here. We want to, we want to add this to the story because this is much better. And so when somebody tries to suggest that the Catholic Church in the 4th century got all the Bibles in the world... From Russia, from Egypt, from Africa, right? They went and they snuck into every country, stole all. This was the greatest Grinch story ever. They got all the Bibles, changed them all in the same place, and so perfectly that even modern technology can't tell where they've been changed. You see how absurd and how ridiculous that is? That's what the world wants us to believe. And I hear people all the time who buy into that. They buy into that. Well, how do you know it wasn't changed? Well, because they would have had to change it before the gospel started to spread. They would have, if they were going to deify Jesus, if they were going to make... We have... Um, anybody ever hear the term Plinian eruption, like about a volcano? Okay. It comes from uh, uh, Pliny the Younger, who witnessed uh, Mount Vesuvius. His uncle, Pliny the Elder, died on that lake during that eruption. And so the term, which is, means a pyroclastic flow coming out and, and how it destroyed uh, Pompeii and Herculaneum, um, came from Pliny the, Pliny the Younger. Now Pliny the Elder, we have a letter from him where he is writing about how the proper way to kill Christians. Okay, um, Anybody know when Vesuvius went off? It's... I, Two free sins, if you know. <laughs> sense of humor, sense of humor. Right around 70 AD, right? It's around the same time as the, as the destruction of the Jewish temple. All right, so here, by, this, by the year 70, there, were, there was already a persecution against Christians. And here's Pliny, who is writing about persecuting them, saying, look... There's a real simple way to find out if they're a threat or not. If they will bow to any of the Roman gods, they're not a threat. They're just worshiping Jesus like we let everybody else worship. Because the, the Romans were pretty free. You worship whatever gods you want. You do what you want. But, but, you got to bow to our gods. Right? Christians come along and say, we're not going to bow to your gods. There's only one God. So Pliny the Elder said, if they, if they will bow to the Roman gods, 
Don't bother killing them. You're just, gonna, you're just making it worse for yourself. You're going to stir up a, a rebellion. And he said, because they don't countenance any talk of God without speaking of Jesus. Meaning that very, very early, there was already an understanding of the divinity of Jesus. Jesus did not become a member of the Trinity throughout the centuries. The Catholic Church didn't turn Jesus into... Even the Roman audiences, even the opponents of Jesus, recognized you can't talk to a Christian about God without them talking about Jesus. They recognized that the early church saw Jesus as divine. Secondly, it's inconceivable that the disciples would have forgotten so much about Jesus in a matter of 50 days after his crucifixion or allowed their religious zeal to overpower their actual memories of him. Imagine you're an apostle and you see the crucifixion and the resurrection. It would be unthinkable of you to say, you know what, let's mess with the story. Right? Now maybe if the resurrection had never happened, maybe if there were doubts in your mind about who Jesus was, but once you realized, remember what Thomas said, my Lord and my God, right? He worshipped him. He worshipped him as God. It would have been inconceivable for them to say, you know what, let's mess with the story. Let's make it better. Let's make it more interesting. Let's change it around. And there were not only the they were not the only eyewitnesses. Hundreds of other followers of Jesus knew him well. How many people had Jesus healed? How many of those hundreds and thousands of people in the crowds were part of the early church? That if the disciples had gotten up and said, remember when Jesus forgave that woman caught in, in adultery and he was wearing that purple robe? And they, No, I remember that well. He was wearing a, right, a white garment. I remember that day. Man, I was just shocked. I was floored by what I saw. I'll never forget that day. So they weren't the only eyewitnesses. How much less would they have thought we could change what he said? Um, so we're left with only one alternative. That the proclamation of the gospel had a stable core that was reproduced in public and private settings and confirmed by eyewitnesses. That's where we're going to close up tonight. But that's what I want us to walk away with. That during those 30 years or so, what was happening was not that the gospel was being forgotten. What was happening was it was being preached three, four, five times a week. The apostolic stories were being told over and over and over. And anyone who was getting up in a church and preaching something that wasn't correct was being rebuked and was being sat down because the early church was filled with eyewitnesses. Think about what Peter said on the day of Pentecost to that crowd of thousands. He told them, you saw Jesus do all these things. You witnessed him do all these things. And you put him on the cross. And the Bible says they were cut to the heart. And they got saved. Right? Peter doesn't say, I know you guys don't know what we're talking about. I know you guys are just here for, for a holiday. He says, you guys saw him. You guys were part of the crowds. You were part of the people that said Hosanna and laid palm branches at his feet. And you said crucify. And they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart and say, what must we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized. And the church exploded and 3,000 people got saved in a single day. Almost all of those 3,000 people. When, I, when, when Pastor Peter would come into the pulpit the next week, almost all of the people he was addressing 
had seen and heard Jesus teach themselves personally. So for those 30 years, you could not have gotten away. You could not have gotten away with injecting something that just didn't happen because the church was made up of witnesses who had seen it happen. They weren't all believers at first, but they had seen it happen in their own towns for themselves. All right, let's get to, to having a word of prayer and, and just ask the Lord to bind this to our hearts. Father God, I know that it, it is more exciting and it's more edifying and it's more encouraging to study your word than to talk about your word. But Lord God, we live in a generation where your word is being watered down. And Father, we need as the church to become equipped on how to fight back against what is happening in this generation, Lord. Father God, we know that the enemy is just waging a full-scale attack against the, the authority of your word. Father, we know that he is trying to, to get people to believe in different gospels and believe different Christs and believe false things about what Jesus said and taught. And Father God, help us as your church to take this time to equip ourselves for your purposes. God, we give you all the honor and glory. And I believe, Lord, in Jesus' name, that you are going to use this time that we equip ourselves and make us the witnesses that we can be. Use us in conversations, Lord, to encourage others. Father, just as unbelievers became believers on the day of Pentecost, let it be in Idaho Falls in this generation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.